Welcome to Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director at Boston Private. Today, we explore the decision-making around how family offices are built and run effectively. We have three former family office executives who have seen many sides of this industry and worked with some of the most complex family office operations in the world. Our discussion will include perspectives on uh, make or buy decisions around services, financial management operations, and talent trends. Uh, the experts today are going to share their lessons learned uh, from their unique experiences in this industry as well. Joining today uh, is my colleague, Dave Lancaster, from our Family Enterprise Services Group. So thanks, Dave, for, for joining us. But let's get uh, underway with some brief introductions. Uh, Rebecca McGuire is my first guest. Uh, Rebecca, give us a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, thank you for having us. I started out of school at KPMG. Had kind of a varied career in my 20s with um, some work in commercial real estate. I did some catering and event planning when I wasn't sure I wanted to work in finance. And then I had my first entry into family office um, as an executive assistant for a multi-generation family in Santa Barbara. And then from there, moved back to the Bay Area. And um, did a little more in commercial real estate and then back into family office in the early 2000s and have been in family office ever since. Excellent. Uh, thanks, Rebecca. And our next guest today is Iran Schreiber. Uh, do give us a little bit about your background, Iran. I'd love to hear more about your uh, uh, the work that you were doing uh, in family office. Sure. Thank you for having me. I started my career in public accounting. I spent uh, some time in the audit department, um, followed by some time in the tax department. And I had uh, a family office client throughout that time. And I was able to um, develop a family office uh, practice for the firm where we were able to target both internal and external clients for family office services. And I was recruited by a client to join their family office as their CFO where I was uh, for 23 years until the patriarch passed away. And I've been doing some uh, family office consulting since that time. Fantastic. And then our, our third panelist today is Lynn Christensen. Uh, Lynn, do give us a, a quick thumbnail of your experience. So I actually worked uh, for technology companies uh, on the HR and operations side, mostly startups. And by working in startups, I met people that that ended up starting family offices because they did so well with some of their startups and um, didn't I didn't even know what a family office was at the time, but they they thought that being on the people side was a was transferable. So they asked me to help them with their family office work. And um, I didn't expect to stay in it, but that was probably 14 years ago. And I've I've been an advisor to numerous family offices on the people side and organizational structure and things pertaining to their staffing and planning. Excellent. Well, let's, uh, let's kick off with uh, our questions for today. The, the one that I had kind of leans into the bio, but I think it's really intro interesting to hear how folks first got started in the family office space. And that'll tie into some uh, later areas we'll explore around talent um, uh, and and sourcing of talent around there. Uh, maybe Rebecca, you could start us off with there and, and give us uh, and and some insight on how you actually got started working with family office. Sure. So 
like I mentioned, I took, I wasn't <laughs> sure what I was doing in my twenties. I took a position, um, with a family third generation wealth, um, well into the billions. They had multiple properties, um, around the U S and, um, owned a lot of Catalina Island. So I got a, a pretty good understanding in my very first family office of, you know, a large single family office and, and everything that, um, they could possibly be doing. And then maybe six years later, um, was recruited to assist with a large tech founders wedding, um, that was international and very complicated and took us, you know, about a year to plan and then another year to unwind because of all of the resources we and supplies and things we had brought over to where the wedding was. And during that time, um, the family just kept throwing more at me and I kept learning more and eventually ended up taking over the office, splitting it for the tech founders. Um, Lynn was part of this as well. She was a consultant for us. Um, so split the family office, stayed with the one family. Um, and then, um, you know, and during that time made big decisions around, you know, who to bring in house and, and who to keep outsourcing. Um, and then eventually ended up, uh, starting another family office, another billion dollar family office in Silicon Valley and, and building that from the ground up. And again, um, with Lynn as part of the advisory team, um, and, uh, and again, a lot of big decisions around, you know, who did we want to be part of the team and who did we want to continue to outsource? Well, thanks, Rebecca. And Lynn, uh, from from your uh, perspective, what was it like getting started in the family office space for you? <laughs> a shock. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I didn't think it would be. It was a big shift going from a product-driven organization to a service-driven organization. And understanding the personalities and how much of a driver that was to the culture, uh, it was a it was a big shift. So, um, but and, and it was trial by fire. You know, you jump in and and things are important on a personal level. It's different than in a rarely do those things rise up to that level on, in a business. You know, someone needs something right now, and um, you know they want the staffing to support whatever their needs and, and goals are. So yeah, it was, it was a big shift, but over time I realized it was a specialized skill that not a lot of people understood. And so I realized that it was, it was special because so many people were looking for expertise around how to do it well. And that's kind of what I think the theme has been is people are always looking for best practices in family office. And it's, it's hard to find what that is. They're all run really differently, but people want to partner in figuring out what the best what the best practices are. Thanks, Lynn. And and Aran, in your experience, how uh, how was it working and and getting started in family office when you made that transition? For me, it was a, an easier transition since I was already working with many family offices as an outside advisor as their um, accountant and CPA. So it was a uh, it was an easier transition, but once I was working full time in a family office, I did see some uh, changes when you are um, in house versus out of house, and how um, you can provide services. And most of it was for the uh, 
for the positive. Um, one thing I didn't see as an outsider, which I saw very clear as an insider, is the management of the various generations and how that interplays with the uh, family office. And that's one area that is uh, quite important in the operations of family offices. Thanks, Ron. Well, uh, all three of you are providing some interesting uh, outsourced services um, uh, for families that some, you used to do in-house. You know, let's talk about the appetite for those services in the family office market. Maybe around you, you've done the, you've been on the inside and and the outside. What what does that looking? What does that appetite look like for the services that you provide today? Well, as you know, the the family office area has grown dramatically over the past few years, and I've seen there is a, a very good appetite for um, outsourced family office services, particularly with service providers that have a very unique skill set and experience for this uh, area. Is there a particular you know, reasoning for that? What's driving that in your opinion? I think the, um, the macro factor is the growth in family offices, just the sheer number of family offices and the uh, lack of um, experienced personnel to service them. Um, and the difficulty in uh, recruiting and retaining qualified personnel, which has given um, service providers that do it as a consultant uh, an advantage who have that experience that can provide uh, good services for the families. Lynn, from your perspective, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, there's a a certain amount of customizing that's required for each family, but um, there's got to be some best practices uh, and and you're bringing some of the, those to your clients that you're working with. What yeah. do you see in terms of the appetite for for that in in your space in your practice? Yeah, I well, I agree with what Iran said. I think that the family office has arena has grown so much, and they've had so many pain points as far as turnover and mishires that it has led them to spend more time and energy on recruiting because it's you know it just they've had to do it. And um, so what I found is that in the beginning, most families want to make an easy, they want to make a phone call and get a referral and find the candidate. But unfortunately, that leads to a lot of shortcutting of good process. And so then they end up getting frustrated and ending up saying, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. And, And typically that's when we get the phone call of, you know, please help us. Um, come in and do a reorg in some cases or bring in a new leader. And I feel like a lot of it is just putting together a plan up front. What is your recruiting plan? Who's going to be involved in that, you know, writing the job description, doing the interviews, doing the background checks, you know, really putting together a thoughtful process up front um, and not shortcutting that. And that's best practice in industry as well. And you just have to take that over into the family office world. Who are those families uh, calling? You, you mentioned they're, they're making calls. Are they calling peers? Who, you know, where, yeah, where is, where a lot of times it's their industry calling. It's just trusted sources, whoever they may be. If they know people that have other family office, but a lot of times they'll call friends and family. They'll call um, any trusted source that they think might be able to provide them, uh, you know, a quick solution. Like lawyers, accountants, yeah, lawyers, managers. Uh, yes, that, yeah. yeah, that's typical. And and a lot of times they'll even want to start with friends and family to fill the yeah. position. And that's usually a big mistake. Mm-hmm. But 
unfortunately it happens a lot because they're known quantities and they think, you know, oh, they can do this job. It's not that hard. Um, again, not really writing down what is the job and, and how broad is the scope and you know, different things that are really important in decision making because family office is more nebulous in many ways than industry as far as roles and responsibilities. Um, in terms of that, Rebecca, I think you, you wanted to jump in. I don't know if you wanted to follow up on, uh, on, on what Lynn said there. Oh, yeah. No, I was just going to say, like, you know, our approach is not just around talent, but around systems and kind of operations in general and and where we see gaps that are um, that are having an effect on the family being able to bring in the right people. And we give them an understanding of exactly what it takes um, to run an effective family office. And we don't, you know, we don't just focus on the human capital, but we focus on everything else in it. Um, you know, it really opens their eyes to a lot of it. And then they start to understand how much time these things take. And also, you know, when writing these profiles for, you know, who they should be hiring, it really allows them to understand, you know, why they can't have a family member or, you know, um, they might have a controller in place that they think would be a great CFO or CEO. And, and here's why you shouldn't, you know, hire from within this person doesn't have you know x y and z so yeah we just have found looking at the entire thing is very important for the family to understand uh iran dave here could you elaborate more on how you think family offices typically go typically go through the make or buy decision process that is for a particular need do we insource or outsource i know uh Prior to joining Boston Private, the single family office that I started and ran for years, we had decided on the virtual family office model where we, where my job was to identify top tier talent and, and coordinate that talent. So the decision was really easy for me uh, because we were outsourcing almost everything. And, and of course, there's the other extreme. I know someone here locally that uh, runs a large family office, and I think they, they've got 180 uh, people in-house. And, They've chosen to do absolutely everything inside, but most family offices, it's more of a combination. How do you think that family offices uh, go through that decision? I think they first try and understand what are their needs and then what can they realistically uh, um, produce as uh, capabilities in-house versus out-of-house and try and match that up. Many times you see the need is not that great. It wouldn't drive the need for an um, in-house or full-time resource and would be better served with a um, outsource resource. And then sometimes they see certain areas where they want um, full, full-time in-house and they will um, try and put the resources together to put together the, the team and the personnel in place and the procedures in place that will effectively um, produce results for them. Yes, so it's very um, customizable amongst the offices. There's no really one standard. I've seen also, just like you've seen, uh, opposite ends of the spectrum, all outsourced, all in-house and a combination of the two. And that's the unique part of the family offices. They're, they're, even though they look for best practices, they're so unique that you really need to customize a solution for each situation. Lynn, could you add to that? Uh, what are some critical issues that you recommend families consider as part of the decision to bring capabilities in-house versus outsourcing them? It, it's a complex answer because um, it depends on the drivers. and. Um, 
I usually like a combo approach. I feel like some staff in house that, that they, if they're at the appropriate size, if they, they can really rely on and that know their culture and know their preferences. But I think there's a lot of things you can reasonably outsource and then you can scale it up or down as needed. I think that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, but it's it's really a complex set of like understanding their needs and their and their priorities and how hands-on they are versus um not. Uh, you know, that those make important differences and how much they want to delegate. Um, and how, you know, because the more I feel like the more you outsource, you have to be a little bit more involved to manage those outsourced resources. Um, if you don't, I mean, if you have people, some people in house, then they can manage those outsourced resources. So, and it usually evolves with most families. That's the other thing. They start out at a certain size and then as things evolve, they change their, their preferences. Sure, sure. And how about the decision? Do we form our own single family office or should we sign on with an existing multifamily office? Is there a certain kind of size of, uh, of assets floor or what do you think uh, are the primary considerations for that decision? I think Rebecca might be better to answer that. She's she's watched people go through. I've always started. I've never done multifamily. And I think Rebecca's helped some people make that decision. Yeah. I think, you know, I used to think it was solely about, you know, assets under management or, you know, what your, like your wealth was. But over the last two years working with multiple, you know, families, probably about a dozen, um, you know, I would say there's, there is kind of a dollar amount around 300 million when things start to become a little bit more complex. And you start to need a lot more help just because the assets are growing. Um, I wouldn't say it's only about, you know, your wealth level. it's, It's complexity for sure. And, you know, what's your appetite for growth and, you know, number of homes and do you want to direct your own investments or, you know, are you kind of hands off? So I think, um, you know, in seeing like a true single family office managing their own investments, like I'm not seeing very much of that anymore because the families spend so much time managing, you know, what I call the non investable assets, like the homes and all of their staff. And they're, they're really focused on philanthropy and, and things like that. So they're more apt to outsource um, the investment side of things and potentially bill pay and accounting, but maybe bring that in-house or partially in-house. Um, but yeah, I really think it's the complexity and, um, you know, how much time it's drawing from the family and their energy. Um, and then I think they're more like Lynn said, um, you know, when you're with an MFO, you're managing a lot more because they're not in-house seeing all of it. Um, so really when they want to kind of step away and spend less time, then they tend to spend more money on stuff and, and start creating more of an SFO structure. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Rebecca. Uh, Ron, in, in terms of, you know, creating your outsourced uh, service as a, an outsourced CFO, 
How did you come up with that idea? I mean, it sounds like you had done some work in that space before. And uh, I'd be curious to see what were some of the motivations of doing it as an outsourced provider. Yeah, I had um, a good deal of experience uh, providing an outsourced uh, CFO as a public accountant. And then after a long career with a single family office, I just started receiving inquiries from um, lawyers or bankers or other referral sources. And uh, I just saw there was a demand for that type of um, experienced outsourced CFO with a focus on family offices. And it was a unique product that really wasn't um, out there. And I actually um, started receiving referral sources from families I worked from and worked for and worked with. And uh, it just uh, grew from there. So it wasn't really part of a, a master plan. It just kind of fell into place um, based on um, demand. So as continuing with that demand, in terms of you know, when you look at what family offices, what drives them, what motivates them, and the things that they need to get done in sort of a hierarchy of needs, uh, you know, the work that you do, and certainly around the reporting and accounting, I mean, it's, it's very low, you know, kind of table stakes, very much needed by everyone. Why is it that you still see a lot of family offices very, very much struggle with, you know, something like consolidated reporting and, and those different areas of compliance? I think because the family office area is so unique, each family office is so different that it uh, drives a demand for somebody who can um, analyze the situation and come up with a uh, solution using either in-house or a combination of in-house and external uh, resources for them. So it's because of the customization or is it, uh, is it the solutions are not matching up to that or where do, where do you see that disconnect? I think because of the tremendous amount of customization and many um, family offices are just not able to um, staff properly. Like was mentioned earlier, they may have a very, very strong controller, but that person may not have the um, skill set to elevate into the CFO role. That's where an outsourced CFO might be a good solution for a family to work with the existing personnel and help drive some of the solutions. Great. Now, in terms of, you know, uh, it, you know, while families are very unique, there's certainly some best practices. Where have you seen that in your world around financial reporting and in other areas of, of an outsourced CFO uh, capability? I think the answer there is really sitting down with the principals and understanding what they want to see in their financial reporting. Although there are many um, common sort of basic reportings, many families that I've worked with had very unique um, sort of asks or wants. You know, one family might want to focus on uh, liquidity and debt. One family may have um, a focus on portfolio reporting. Um, it really depends on the uh, needs of the family and then addressing those needs in a solution. I mean, other than the, the focus, are, is there other aspects that are different, like maybe getting digital versions versus paper or other uh, types of uh, individual things that folks should be uh, thinking about? Yeah, I think the, the uh, paperless office is uh, a pretty well-founded um, sort of starter for many offices now. Um, and, and that's something I've seen um, happen for quite some time. And uh, just also now with uh, COVID and the pandemic, many people working off-site, that's helped uh, the families that have kind of geared up and had a good uh, backbone 
and digital office operate uh, during these times effectively. So you mentioned the the digital office and then in that piece of it, what are there other key themes around financial management and in in the CFO role within a family office that you're seeing as a across across the board? Yes, uh, um, family offices are more open to change as opposed to a decade ago. It was more of a secretive world. Now they're they're more open to um, the work from home concept, the digitalization. They're more uh, trusting of that, which was not the case in the past, where uh, many of the offices were uh, very um, paper only and not able to um, to uh, move to a, a work from home or remote home or a multiple office uh, situation. Tehran. Now, Rebecca, uh, turning gears a little bit towards a concept that y- you've discussed around the family office life cycle, I think it's a it's a very interesting uh, uh, concept, and I'd be curious to to learn more about it. And I'm sure our listeners would be very interested in that. And is it a is it a life cycle? How we think of things in nature, and that they progress from point A to B, or are are folks coming in and off of the, the path that, that you've described, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. I think they're more coming in and off because I think, you know, what the diagram we created doesn't represent is that, um, you know, there could be multiple wealth events, um, different stages of growth after the different wealth events. And then, you know, it can repeat for sure. Um, I think that, Probably, you know, the stage five, which is in our life cycle of assessment and prioritization, I think, you know, that probably happens maybe um, largely like one generation at a time, like they might hit that unmanageability um, stage and then they do an assessment and prioritization. And then, you know, the team that they end up bringing on does that regularly. So they're not going to have like, a complete restructure, or at least we would hope, you know, if the right, if, if we're doing it, like you're not going <laughs> to do it again. Um, you're going to have a plan moving forward of, you know, how to assess growth and how to, um, you know, address the changes that you're going through and put systems around that. And, um, you know, we, we, um, we do things like, you know, we work with their financial advisors and their accounts to put cash flow models in place and let them understand, you know, if you're going to buy another property um, based on the properties that you own, like this is the number of staff that you're probably going to need to hire. This is, you know, the cost um, associated with operating that property so they can see, um, you know, in making decisions like around purchasing a property that, they're not just going to purchase a property. It's not just, you know, say $20 million, they're going to buy that property. It's going to be, you know, another $5 million based on the number of staff needed and all of the infrastructure around that. So we try and leave them with tools and a plan um, going forward for their future family office. But yeah, definitely they're hitting some of these stages multiple times in their, in their um, wealth life cycle. Could you maybe walk us through uh, that? I think it's an interesting concept. Yeah. So family office life cycle, I think, um, you know, kind of what we've experienced and then um, just kind of generalizing, you know, stage one is the working family. If it's multi-gen, you know, it's the kids maybe before the trust um, 
pays out. Stage two would be their wealth event where, you know, they probably had some wealth prior to like an IPO or a sale. Um, but all of a sudden it, you know, it skyrockets and they're, you know, they're worth 10 times or 20 times what they were worth, you know, the year prior. Um, naturally they start to buy things and they start to invest in things. People, um, are asking them to donate and join boards and all of that stuff. And then, you know, eventually, um, their family office is their full-time job where they don't know how they got to that point. They said yes to too many things. They bought too many things and there wasn't a plan in place. Um, and that's generally where we get the call and we help them, um, come in at what we call stage five assessment and prioritization, um, help them figure things out, how to effectively staff and grow moving forward. And then, you know, stage six future of your family office is really up to you. Um, but we're hoping at that point that we've, we've given you enough to, to work forward with, and that we've, um, helped you staff, you know, the right people to do that for you. Rebecca, it's Dave. Uh, one of the most interesting trends that uh, I've noticed in the family office community is the expanded diversification of leadership talent. I remember when I first started working with family offices um, almost 20 years ago, family offices I found were frequently led by uh, accountants, by CPAs like, like Iran. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed today is 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 how much more diversified that is. It seems that we've got leaders from private equity, venture capital, investment banking, private banking, legal, et cetera. You mentioned that you do some uh, recruiting for family offices. Could you talk a little bit uh, about that, please? Sure. Yeah, so we do um, you know, various different levels, usually kind of a chief of staff and up. Um, we're currently looking for a family office CEO. We will do like you know, the support to the C team. Um, so executive assistance, that kind of thing. Um, definitely seeing a lot more varied background in these people. I mean, myself as a perfect example, like I did not have, I had, you know, a background at KPMG and I understood a lot about real estate, commercial real estate, finance, budgets, all of the things, but I did not have you know, a background in really anything <laughs> related to family office, but I learned it on the job. Um, but we're definitely, um, you know, seeing a lot more variation in, in who's running these. And I think it also has to do with um, how large the office is and what their focus is. Like if the focus isn't entirely on building the portfolio, but maintaining you know, they might not need someone running it that's as versed in investment or if their focus is on philanthropy, um, you know, they might want someone, um, you know, that has more of a background there. Um, it really depends on what they're doing. Um, but yeah, it's not so much the investment and banking um, industries anymore that they're pulling out of. Yeah, it, it seems like the common denominator is trust, right? And right. uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, the family office space is so fragmented. And one of the things that I'm really glad that I did with the, with the family's uh, blessing was to kind of climb out of my silo and try and identify 
um, family office events, get-togethers that were were high quality, and uh, and was just you know amazed at uh, how many different types of uh, people from interesting backgrounds were leading family offices. But it seems that uh, when you kind of drilled into it, that ultimately that's what it came down to. Who who's who's a smart person that I can really trust to to uh, do the best job on my behalf? Right, and I think Lynn and I talk about this a lot. That you know, a generalist who has dabbled in kind of a little bit is usually the best person to to run the entire family office, only because you know it encompasses so much more than just the investment and finance side of things with their personal needs. And depending on how big their personal staff is, you know, this person needs to be relatable and understand, you know, even the perspective of of like a housekeeper. Um, And they have to be kind of low ego and, you know, willing to pitch in. So, you know, we tend to look, um, unless asked, um, to look primarily investment oriented. We're, We're looking for people that can pivot and kind of work on anything and are willing to. Yeah, I was going to say this came up on our call the other day that um, it's really about people management also. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was something that was previously prioritized. Right. And the people management is where it starts to break down and bubble up to the principal, you know, when people are unhappy. And so having good people skills ends up being really important and um, and good decision making. And it really is the trust factor that you mentioned, which is hard to nail down, but it has to be there. What about retention? I mean, you're talking about uh, professionals that it may, might be a challenge to, to build a career in a group like that, or they may be very specialized or had been very successful before they come uh, working with you and the families that you work with, either uh, or in that capacity, how, how do you address some of those issues with talent? You want to take that, Lynn? Yeah, I have. Well, yeah, we have some slides on this. I think that you really got to be in touch with your market. I mean, in the Bay Area, for example, people can get stock options in most companies, not most, but a lot. And so if you want to compete with that, you have to have something that's compelling um, there are ways to do stock proxies or, you know, co-invest or different things you can come up with long-term incentives. Um, but you have to be aware of it. You know, you have to be aware of what your market looks like. It's very competitive in a lot of markets. Um, and actually when a family office is known to be running well, they will get poached, you know, or attempted to (laughs) poach. So, You've got to create the loyalty and the um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of create. The thing I like about family office is you have the ultimate flexibility and in terms of how you incent people and how you structure it. So I feel like you should use that tool to your to your benefit and be creative and find figuring out what are the drivers for people and really listening to that and structuring your plan. I mean, Rebecca just had me do one for someone she works for because she has a key employee she wants to retain and she wanted to be creative. So we came up with a like kind of customized solution for this person for a long-term incentive. And that to me is what's at your disposal is to be really think outside the box a little bit. Yeah. And I think combined with not only just comp, but 
Um, you know, Lynn sees this a lot with, with the family offices that we worked on together and, and I'm seeing it with my clients is, you know, how much can you show your employees that you care that, you know, isn't a large cost to the family, but providing perks to them that, you know, make their lives easier and showing them, you know, a nice holiday gift that like you put a lot of, you know, or your assistant maybe put the thought into, or maybe they did, (laughs) but these like smaller things like providing, you know, gym equipment at the work, providing a yoga instructor, like all of these things, again, as Lynn mentioned, having this flexibility, like they go a long way. And, you know, even just providing lunches, I mean, people are so thankful that, you know, and, you know, over time, like your phone, your lunch, your health insurance, like all these things are, you know, they end up being like pretty big ticket items over the year. Um, And when the family's taking care of you, like someone might offer you an equal package, but then you look at all your fringe benefits and you're like, this is, no, sorry, like that's not even close. (laughs) Or it's psychological benefits. Yeah. It's funny how lunch is not a big ticket item, but people love it. They love Mm -hmm. having like a nice coffee machine in the office or espresso or, you know, there's things you can do. Um, even down to like just paying a hundred percent of their health care, you know, that, yeah. that is pricey, but it also goes such a long way for people feeling committed and loyal. Yeah. So that one's like, huge. Yeah. There's like a lot of things that I suggest along those lines. I have two slides on like low cost, high impact. And then there's also some more higher, the higher cost, but also very high impact as far as setting yourself apart as, um, an exceptional place to work. So uh, all great insights, and all three of you are, you know, truly family office insiders. I mean, are there things that you know today that you wish you could have told yourself, you know, 15, 20 years ago when you were getting into this space uh, to to be more effective at what you're doing? And I'll ask all three of you this. Maybe, Lynn, we can start with you. Um. Yeah, I kind of laugh when I hear you say that because the list is so long that I don't know where to start. But (laughs) I feel like I thought I understood the people side of it. And I I think that I should have come in almost like what I'm advising families to do is you got to take your old ideas and set them aside. Not that you can't bring them back in, but Family office is really unique. It attracts a unique kind of person. It, it's a unique culture. Um, I think that I tried to apply a lot of things that I had known and it was different. And I think that, um, you know, staying open-minded, um, gosh, it's like I said, it's really, it's hard to answer because I feel like I learned a lot through trial and error. Um, but I guess that's the benefit of <laughs> doing something. Um, <laughs> And also just getting getting the uh, families to really buy in early um, instead of like, I feel like a lot of what I had to do was put out fires instead of getting in front of things. And that would have made a huge difference for everybody is to is to get their buy in to do more planning up front. But I think until it's a pain point, sometimes it's not something they want they want to deal with. Um, so it, it's it's. Um, it's a complicated answer. I'll see. I'd love to hear what the others have to say. <laughs> sure. Uh, and Rebecca, what, what do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a hard question because we've learned a lot over the last 15 years. Um, I would say personally, like, you know, not, you don't have to say yes to everything and along the lines of structure, you know, providing it around yourself and your staff faster than just saying yes to everything and waiting until, you know, things are, are too much for you and your staff to handle. I think, you know, this industry definitely, um, attracts service oriented people, myself being one of them. And, you know, while I'm highly capable of doing a lot at once, I'm also guilty of, you know, burning myself out. So I think, um, you know, I learned this later in my career, but but I wish I had learned it a little bit early on um, is just, you know, setting those boundaries and creating the structure um, and, and kind of, you know, and, and making it clear that like we need to do this or, you know, this is going to go the wrong way. But um, I would say that one. And then now I train people on that. Like I tell both employers and their staff, you know, let's, let's future plan and let's make sure that we're not going to hire under duress because that's something else that Lynn and I learned the hard way doing <laughs> a few times when we were just underwater and needed someone and, you know, made a bad hiring choice. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely, I work a lot with my clients on this and we touch base, you know, probably monthly, um, with them and, and, you know, they're, their higher level people to make sure that they're supported and, and that we're not going to get into that situation. Is the, is it, Rebecca, is the firefighting uh, that Lynn mentioned in terms of things that come up solvable yeah. with some of the planning that you talked about, or is it? Is, for, is it yeah, for they, sure. And, yeah. I mean, so we're trying a, to it, yeah. not be firefighter. Like, you know, we'll firefight if we have to, but we want to be, you know, fire preventers and, you know, Lynn and I used to talk about that all the time. Like we need to start preventing some of these fires instead of just putting them out. It's like, we're really good at putting them out, but we would much rather prevent them from happening. So yeah. Um, you know, another thing we help our clients do is just massive planning and, um, you know, preventative measures against all of these things, documenting and putting systems in place, even for a really small family office that outsources a lot. I mean, we put systems in place and redundancies so that they don't find themselves in a difficult position and neither do any of their staff or vendors. So, or advisors rather, but yeah, for sure. Uh, Ron, uh, looking back uh, from when you started working with family offices, what, what's uh, one thing that you wish you would have known? Well, it's a great question. And Rebecca and Lynn gave some great insight. I, I would say one thing I wish I knew back then is that even now, many years later, it's still very interesting work. Things come up that are very unexpected, and uh, it keeps you uh, interested, engaged, and on your toes. And that's something when you first enter this area, you don't realize that it's uh, going to provide you perhaps a, a long career of very, very rewarding and challenging work. A lot of the people in the family office arena are strong personalities, self-made, and uh, there is a certain unique uh, style to, to manage a working relationship with that type of um, individual. Thanks. And uh, I want to end on the, the human capital aspect because it seems like a, a common theme in our the discussion uh, today. And, you know, uh, 
Rebecca, from your perspective, what, what do you think this is going to look like 10 years from now? I mean, remote working in many industries was very uncommon before um, a pandemic and uh, certainly become more popular. Are, are there other things that you think will be uh, more acceptable in the family office like remote working or, or, or maybe more of a formal career path or other things? What, what do you think the, the future holds there? Yeah, I definitely think remote working is way more acceptable and probably will continue. A lot of the family offices that I've talked to are not going to return to a large, you know, office space. They've found that it's actually kind of toxic that the different departments don't work well together and they're forced to within these large single family offices um, when they really just kind of want to be laser focused on on what is their um you know, responsibility. Um, I think that in thinking about that, to me, like my future like is outsourcing a lot more. I used to be a real kind of um, proponent and um, everything of bringing, you know, like the accounting team in, in-house and all of that. Like, and now I've been able to structure a few offices, you know, more than maybe five or six over the last two years that have these amazing outsourced accounting and and built pay teams like similar to Iran's that, um, you know, they do it right. And you get uh, a lot more resource for your dollar. You're not just getting that one person who's insulated within your family office. So I think what I'm seeing is, you know, people dissolving their their kind of single family offices and and they're outsourcing a lot more and i think as people understand the family office industry more and more and branch out like Lynn and Iran and i have and we have some other coworkers um that have started you know different uh advisory around real estate construction those kind of things i think we're going to see more of that um and you're not going to need to to employ these people in-house um career path wise i'm not really sure there's not really a vertical at a family office so much um because once you have someone good they tend to stay for a while i think that we're seeing a lot more family offices doing you know continued education and career development but i think you know similar to being somewhere like kpmg like you're kind of leaving and then maybe coming back but it might not be within the same family office if you want to move up. Makes sense. Aran, uh, from your perspective, 2030, what's, uh, what's the family office human uh, capital landscape look like? I think it's going to look um, different than today. I think the uh, adoption of the work from home, the remote work is going to accelerate. I think families are going to uh, focus more on outsources, outsourcing resources or at least looking at possibly outsourcing resources and looking to improve the um, the ultimate product, not just basically on a, a cost formula, but on a uh, total um, package received and benefits received. And I think in terms of a human capital, it's going to be a, a growing field, but it's going to be challenging to uh, staff. I think you can have similar challenges that you've had in the past up here. And uh, the one common theme is that the families are going to look for someone they can trust and help them um, develop the solutions they need. Well, listen, you know, thanks to all of our, our panelists today, Lynn, Iran, and Rebecca, uh, some really thoughtful insights uh, on, some, on a very complex topic. 
and we covered a lot of interesting ground. So if you'd like to get in touch with our guests or if you have any questions, uh, do send us an email uh, to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend that you check out our website. You can find numerous resources. Check out a new survey that we just put out on family offices. Sign up for a newsletter. Get this podcast and much, much more directly in your inbox. Um, that website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to, uh, to podcasts. And that's it for today. Thanks to, uh, thanks to Dave and everyone else. Uh, check back for a new podcast in two weeks. Bye, everybody. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.